0: Hey, well, Thank you guys for worshiping with us this morning. Thank you for singing. I appreciate that. You lifted me up this morning, and I hope that you're encouraged and lifted up. And the eyes of your heart are lifted up beyond what you're dealing with, beyond what you're facing, beyond what you're worrying about, concerned about, even beyond what you're celebrating and what you're joyful about, that you can be moved beyond that to the giver of that joy, to the giver of those gifts, to the giver of all good things, and to the sustainer of all things when things aren't going well. For you. So we're here to worship that God and learn from Him this morning. So we like to turn. To the Bible. We believe here at Grace Point that the Bible is the authoritative Word of God, that God actually breathed that to human writers who wrote from uh, their personalities, but wrote the words of God, the inspired Word of God. So we turn to the Bible for wisdom and insight into what this God of the universe has to say to us. That's what we like to do here at GPC. So this is where you are, and you found us in part six of a seven-part series called A Thousand Words, and this is a a series that is really telling the story of uh, Jesus' parables, and seven of Jesus' parables that we like to uh, to talk about um, here. And and the reason we're calling it A Thousand Words is because, as you know, a picture is worth this, right? And we've said that before, and we know that when we're trying to find directions to something, we'll often, instead of reading all the, the words, we'll ask, are there any pictures? Or even if there's a Even if there's a book around, and you, sometimes as you're growing up and you're getting beyond elementary school, you ask the question, well, are there any pictures in that book or not? You know, it'd be easier if there are pictures in the book. And so, in a way, getting a picture of something is a way to help us see, you know, what we should be doing. And at Grace Point, we talk about developing fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ, and that's kind of our mission, the way we talk about what we do. And we know, as we keep trying to walk through life in different stages, it actually becomes quite complex sometimes to know, what should I do to grow in my faith. What does someone who wants to follow Jesus do when they're sick? What should someone who wants to follow Jesus do when there's marital strife? What should someone who wants to follow Jesus do when they're trying to make a decision about college or a roommate or about what job to take or about how to handle our family stress? What should a follower of Jesus do in those situations? Because I don't know what to do and things can get complicated in a hurry Relationally, financially, emotionally, spiritually, physically, in a hurry. And so these pictures that are painted for us are stories by Jesus. kind of a picture that's worth a thousand words to help us remember, hopefully, in certain moments and seasons in life that we can look back and say, okay, oh yeah, I remember the story. I remember the story, there was something about a table and a chair and he had a stool up here and I remember that, but what was that about? Oh, about honoring other people and remembering that God's estimation of me is what matters. There's something about wineskins and old wine. Oh yeah, you know, there's something there about how God has always been in the business of drawing near to those who are far from him. Like the wine and the new wineskins, like I need to be careful how I treat people who are far from him. And the good Samaritan men I know that story. But you know, it's helpful to remember that People who really love God really love people and give up a right to be against them. I like, it's important to remember, that when I feel like I have a right to be against you because you did something to me, maybe I should remember that, good Samaritan. Not just about being nice to people, but what I need to give up. And, and the story about the tower is like, if you have a money to build a tower, count the cost ahead of time. And if you're a king and you're sending 10,000 people to battle against 20,000, you're probably going to lose. So what was the point of that again? Oh, the point of that again, Jesus said, give up everything you have and come follow me. Give up everything you have. So take your resources, think about it, and then say, you know what? I can't even protect myself anyway. I can't even provide for my own future anyway. So I'm going to go all in and trust that only Jesus can bear the weight of eternity that my soul desires. I'm going to go all in on that. And last week, if you were here with us, we talked about the, the lost sheep, coin, and son Because Jesus was responding to an accusation that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law had against him. And he said, they said, he eats with sinners and tax collectors. He hangs out with people who don't deserve, don't deserve to hang out with righteous people. And Jesus told the story. And basically the point of the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son, is that lost things are worth celebrating. When you lose a sheep, it's worth celebrating one in a hundred. When you lose a coin, it's worth celebrating one in ten that's found. And then it gets tricky when it's people because people make moral and ethical decisions that sometimes are wrong. And the lost son made an immoral decision to go live immorally, unethical decision to ask for his father's inheritance early. And Jesus makes this point to say, listen, even then, God is so compassionate. If you want to know the heart of the father, God the father is so compassionate, he celebrates even when the most undeserving people turn to him. That's when he celebrates. So we celebrate all lost things when they are found. As you walk through life and you're trying to figure out what do I do and how do I respond to my, my kids' friends who are really taking them in the wrong direction and their parents, should I have them over, should I not? You know, how do I deal with people who are influencing me or you know, my company in the wrong way? Maybe some of these stories come to mind to remind you of how Jesus talked, what he taught along the way. This morning we're going to get personal and we're also going to get strange. How about that? Strange personal moments. We're going to get personal because Jesus talks, tells a parable here that, um, it, that hits us where it can hurt and hits us in a very practical, tangible way. And it's also, if I'm honest, a little strange. And the parable that Jesus tells this morning has to do with this issue of money. It has to do with the issue of money. Now, if you're in church, which you are, or you're listening later, to a church service broadcast, you may or may not have thought that the church is always all about asking people for money. I think if you've been at Grace Point for a while, you know that's not uh, what we do, that's not our MO, but when we think about money, the issue here is not that the church is asking for more of it, but rather how do we think about something that we all deal with every day. In fact, there are very few of you who have gone through this past week and not made some kind of money decision or not had some kind of money issue weigh on you from the purchase of new, whatever, new car parts, because your car broke like mine did again, you know, and I fixed something again with my car, but I'm not going to, you know, brag on that too much, but I did just, you know, all all right. right. And if something breaks down and you think, oh man, do I, and you ask the question, do I have the money for it? It's a little bit of a strain on you, right? A little bit of a strain, a push on you. You know, we, we think about um, where I'm going to go to college, how much debt I'm going to bring in, what kind of job I'm going to get later on becomes a money decision. We think about if we get sick, we think about, oh, I got to go to the doctor. I'm going to have to pay a copay. I wonder what kind of treatments I'm going to have to deal with. And it comes down to money decisions. You start dating someone, you start to, you don't first start to ask how much will it cost, but after a while you're like, man this is starting to cost me a little bit you know it's starting to cost to go out to eat all the time and you know all that we do you know it's starting to cost a little bit of money some of you settled on a house recently and all of a sudden you're thinking money like regularly because you're paying bills that you didn't have to pay before and when the roof leaks it's on you right not the landowner anymore I mean you're you're the one that has to deal with that and that's just part of the deal and we constantly are making decisions about money we orient our life around it and so it's important to actually speak to it because it's so critical And one of the things we can't do is we can't just ignore it and pretend it's not there. We can't just say, yeah, I'm just going to love God and hope that the money stuff settles out and I'm going to try not to get into debt and embezzle, and otherwise you know, we're we're in good shape. And so Jesus tells a strange, strange parable to get after something very important about how we see money and resources. And if I can put it in a term or a phrase as we think about what Jesus is trying to say here about money, um, here's what I think this parable is all about and we're going to get into this strange parable in a minute but here's what i think that he's saying that he's saying that his disciples jesus disciples make money decisions based on the real value of the dollar that jesus disciples people who say that i want to follow him make real make decisions make money decisions based on understanding the real value of the dollar now they didn't have a dollar back then, but if you excuse the translation to modern-day currency, in here in North America, this is this is the deal: that people who follow Jesus make money decisions based on an understanding, a real understanding of the real worth, the real value of the dollar, and to get under that to what the dollar is actually worth, Jesus tells a strange, strange parable that is a little weird all right and it's one of those that you're like i've heard of that before but i never was quite sure whether that was ethical or what was really going on in that so so we're going to look at that if you have a bible with you why don't you go ahead and turn to the gospel of luke luke is the second book in the or excuse me the third book in the new testament matthew mark and then luke and uh luke is one of the uh the followers um early followers of jesus He, he was a uh a a doctor who wanted to write an orderly account of how things were um, happened in Jesus' life, and so he wrote down the Gospel of of Luke. And uh, Luke is the third book in the New Testament. Uh, Luke chapter 16 is where we're going to end up here this morning. We're just kind of continuing from where we left off last week. And by the way, if you don't own a Bible, there should be a Bible in the pew around you, and you can have that Bible. It's our gift to you to take uh, home with you and to have uh, from this day forward. We hope that you will engage in that. I want to read to you the first uh, nine verses of Luke chapter 16 just to set up the, the framework of this parable, and then I'm going to come back and comment on a few of these things and continue from there. All right? Luke chapter 16, beginning at verse 1. And this almost comes with no introduction. Jesus just changes the subject. So Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. And so he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management. So then, excuse me, give an account of your management, because you cannot be my manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do, so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. Verse 5, and so he called in each one of his master's debtors, and he asked the first, how much do you, owe my master? 800 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 400. And then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. And the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. All right? Let's talk about this parable. This is strange. This is a little weird. There's a lot going on that is a little funky. All right? Now we're going to talk about it. Now let's set it up. Jesus is talking to, to who? What's the, uh, the fourth word? Jesus told his What? told his disciples. So just to set the context, these are people in the broadest of terms who are disciples. If you think 12 disciples go broader than that, these are people who are still in this time in Jesus' life following him. They happen to be around during his teaching. This is broadly speaking his disciples, people who just are interested in his teaching. So people who are interested in his teaching and who are kind of following him, he's speaking to them, people who have an interest in, in him. That may be you this morning, right? I mean, you may be in that category. In fact, many of you here probably are in that category. So Jesus is talking to people who want to follow him and kind of model their life after them. And so he says, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. Now we need to understand what's happening then to make sense of this parable now. This um, economic setup we have some similarities to now in 2015, but was a little unique to the time in which Jesus was, um, was living. Rich, um, we'll call them masters, rich masters would have um, an estate and they would have someone essentially be their, uh, let's say their CFO, all right? Uh, Someone who would come in and manage the estate and act as an executor of the estate or an executor of the will almost. But they would make money decisions for them. They would obviously have to be very trusted. It was also a very enviable position. Uh, People could be a free man or a slave who ultimately might rise to this level of trust through almost the lifetime of working for his master. Sometimes people would want this position so much that they would sell themselves into this position. They would sell themselves into debt, essentially, to the master so that they could become this manager of the estate of this really wealthy person. Because along with this position came great social uh, acclaim, came great social power. You were looked at very uh, highly for what you became, what you accomplished. You were a a graduate of the highest colleges and universities in the land, you made the most money. I mean, you were looked at as someone who was influential and powerful because you were a manager of someone who was very wealthy, and you called the shots. So he would often, as the master of it all, would just trust you, and he would make big-picture decisions, but you would actually manage all of the little things that happened. That gave you great power because you could kind of move things around within the accounting system and as long as at the end of the day things didn't look too bad the master wouldn't be too upset and you could kind of make things work and you could maybe if you needed to play favorites a little bit and kind of give somebody something for a return favor over here and you know you had a lot of influence and so we have the master and we have the manager and so the manager in this case the rich man's manager was accused of wasting his possessions now the accusation is pretty strong meaning that the the manager mishandled. Now if we start into the parable thinking of that from our worldview, we think therefore what the manager had to do was he just kind of fiddled away his possessions. He made bad decisions. I mean that's exactly the accusation. This is someone who made bad decisions with the money that was there. And if you keep making bad decisions with someone else's money, you don't keep the job that you're in anymore. It's just pretty simple that way. And so verse 2 he calls him in, the master calls him in and asks him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. So in other words, today you're fired. I'm going to give you some time to finish up your work, but you no longer have your job. Close whatever deals you need to, you know, wrap up whatever you need to, but you're no longer working here now some people when that happens there's a security guard who comes in to your meeting right and walks you there's a fire person out of the meeting so you don't do anything dumb on the way out right the people who do that others are like hey you've got a week whatever to get things organized before you make your way out of here and this is what happened in this case it wasn't a, an instant you're fired and you're out right now it was a you have some time because of the complexity of the job that you have you have a lot of people who this will impact if you are no longer here and so you're no longer here given accounting i want to see all of the accounting so i can hand it off to somebody else and so as the manager is walking out of his master's office his boss's office he's like i'm in trouble like man what do i do like what i wasn't ready for this what do I do? And to make matters worse for the, for the manager, this isn't just about I've lost a job, maybe I'll go work for the next master. It's like when you lose this job, you don't get to take another job like this. Like you, if, you don't, if you're not trusted by this master, you're not going to be trusted by somebody else. And to make matters even worse, what went along with this job was that you had room and board. You just lost not only your job, but your home. You were in the household of the master. And in this case, not only have you lost your job, but you're getting kicked out of the home. You're not going to have a place to stay anymore. It's doubly bad. And then to add on to that, the social status that you had, you just went from up here to way down. You are now a disgraced person in society. And so just about everything that could go wrong has just gone wrong. You will be looked at as a uh, a disrespectful, lazy worker. You don't have a place to work anymore, and you certainly don't have a place to stay anymore. And you can imagine the stress that that would create. And this is what is happening inside the manager's heart right there, and you see it in verse 3. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. And he starts thinking about what he could do. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. In other words, I could do manual labor, but I don't have the strength for it. And I could beg, but that would be really embarrassing. Who would want to sit around and beg? And oh, What do I do? What do I do? What do I do? And then he gets this idea. Verse 4. I, I know. I know what I'll do. So that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. Because after all, I need a place to stay because I'm losing my job and my house. And so here's what he does in verse 5. Verse 6. So, verse 5. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. And he asked the first, How much... Do you owe my master? Okay, do you know why this guy's losing his job? Because he doesn't know the answer to that question. You are the manager of all the money, and you don't know how much the people owe your master. This is why you're not working for the guy anymore. All right? Right? I mean... What kind of question? Hey, I think you owe my master some money. What do you owe him? I forget what it is. Okay, this is why he's losing his job. He doesn't know some really important answers to questions. So the guy says, verse 6, 800 gallons of olive oil. Now, to us, that means nothing. I don't even know what that means. I think we have olive oil in the kitchen. I mean, 800 gallons. I don't want to owe anybody that much olive oil, but I don't really care about that much anyway. You know, it's just not that big a deal. I have no concept of what this means. So to put this in context... Um, it, it, would take, um, it would take 20 or 25 times um, as much acreage as a normal farm for someone to produce this much olive oil. Imagine an average farm, right? And then multiply that by 20 or 25, and then you can begin to produce the amount of olive oil that this guy owes. In other words, a lot. He owes a lot. This is a big debt. This is a big debt. And this just speaks to how wealthy the master is, that he can afford to loan out this much and to have people in debt to him this much. This is a wealthy, wealthy master. And so the manager is like, all right, 800. manager told him, take your bill. Sit down quickly because my, I only have so much time. Sit down quickly because I have to give an accounting and just, you know, I have to come back to my master and make it 400. Know, That's a pretty big deal. It's a 50% discount. All right you should have been fired long ago. This is great for me. You know, I only owe 400 now. Awesome. And then he does it again, verse 7. And then he asks the second, and how much do you owe? Again, this is why he's getting fired, okay? A a thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and we'll we'll make it 800. We'll give you 20% discount. You weren't as nice to me as the other guy, right? You get 20% discount. And so the master comes in, and what do you think what do you think the master is going to do? Like if I didn't read this parable to you already and you didn't have the answer in front of you, like just think logically about this. If this guy's already accused of wasting possessions and he comes in, he's just cut a debt in half on a whim. He's actually cut a debt in half because he wants a place to stay. I mean, what, what would I do as a master? I'll tell you what I would do. <laughs> like, Give me the rest of the books. Bring in the security guard. You need to leave now. You've already wasted enough of my possessions. Stop wasting the rest of my possessions. I mean, it's exactly what I would do. I, I don't know what you would do, but this guy's wasting. You don't just forgive 50% of a debt because you want a place to stay. You're not thinking about the good of me as the master. These people owe me legitimately what they borrow. And so it is very striking, and it is very odd and very strange, that in verse 8, the master, instead of condemning the dishonest manager commended the dishonest manager. This is weird. This is odd. This is the change, the twist, That like what? The master commended, and then the, the language in the NIV at least is the dishonest manager because he acted shrewdly. He's like, way to be dishonest and shrewd. This doesn't make any sense. The master commended the dishonest manager because he acted shrewdly. And then Jesus says, for the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are people of the light. And then he gives this principle in verse 9 to try to explain why, verse 8, why this move is good and not bad. Why this move from the manager should be um, commended and not condemned. And he says this in verse 9, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. What, this, what the manager did is he said, okay, this money has a certain value. This, this olive oil has a certain value to my master. The, the bushels of wheat have a certain value to my master. But you know what's more valuable to me? The relationship I have with the person who owes the money. And if I can use the money and leverage my influence over the money to better the relationship so that when I lose my job, I will have a better relationship with that person, I'm going to do it. I would look at it and I'd say, you are dishonest and you're not working for me anymore. Jesus says, this is good. There's something here to learn from. And this, if I'm honest, is strange very different than the way I come to it. Jesus says, take this principle and let me go further with you. He said, use your worldly wealth to make friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. That if your, your power over the money that you manage has the potential to shape relationships and to influence people, Use that money to influence people now. Use that money to influence people for eternity, not just now. That The real value of the dollar is not how much you save for yourself. The real value of the dollar is not making sure everybody pays you back, but the real value of the dollar goes beyond the dollar to the relationship that is eternal. The way he tells a story is strange. The way he commends a servant is strange. But it's consistent. It's consistent with everything Jesus has said to this point in all of his parables. If we go back to the parable of the table and the chairs, if you remember that, when Jesus went into the, the feasting, the, the, um, the party that was going on with the Pharisees, and he said, listen, you guys... Have a, a, an empty seat, and you want people of honor to come there, and you invite only people of honor to come so that you can feel better about yourself and they can feel better about themselves, and you have this thing going on, this reciprocal thing going on. He said, Let me tell you, the only thing that matters is God's estimation of you. The only thing that matters is God's estimation of you. Therefore, use your opportunities now to honor other people. So invite to the table the poor, invite to the table the people who don't bring you any honor but whom you can honor, invite to the table people who are important to God who are not important to anybody else. Then he tells the story of a good Samaritan. An incredible story of someone who's disenfranchised, a Samaritan who's way out there socially. And he becomes a hero of the story. He says, listen, there's some people who are not, who are going to be looked at as not lovable at all. be some people who don't, you're not going to even want to touch. And he said, this is, these are people who, we, we love everybody, right? God loves people so much that he tells this story to say, listen, People who love me really love people, all people. And it tells the story of the, the lost son, the lost coin, the lost sheep. And, it, and in that parable that we just finished in chapter 15 that rolls into chapter 16, the, the, the line of thought again comes right down the same line of listen, there are people, there are people who are not worth or not deserving in our minds of being celebrated when they're found, who are kind of unrighteous, unholy, kind of like the the younger son. But God is so compassionate that he celebrates even when people who are undeserving turn to him. And now he says, use your money. Use your money to reach people like this. Use your money and use your influence over your wealth to influence people who otherwise would not be influenced Use your resources to reach people who otherwise would not be reached so that when you die and you get to heaven, you will see people who will welcome you and say, you know what, thank you. Thank you for your generosity. Thank you for giving. Thank you for helping me and supporting me. This is what Jesus is saying, that the real value of the dollar goes beyond the dollar. It goes past this Life to impact people who otherwise wouldn't be touched by the, the Christian love of God, by the Christian love of one another. And Jesus pushes a little bit further and he goes into verse 10. And he says here in verse 10 Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. This is really hard if we're honest about this. It is harder to handle a little than it is to handle a lot. Have you ever thought about that? If I gave you, you $1,000 and I said, listen, I'll be back you know, in, in you know, a, a week or two and I, and I want to know that my $1,000 is back, but I want you to spend or invest a little bit and see if you can get a return on that. Or if I gave you $5 and I said, I want you to, to invest and give me some more money back when I come back. It's actually harder because your fear when you have less money is that I have to really hold on to the less that I have? You ever been through that as you're growing up and going through life early on? Maybe it's college years or you know high school years. You're just starting to get a job and you don't have a whole lot of money to your name yet. And you're you know people are thinking of oh, let's go out to eat after we do this you know movie or whatever. And you start counting the pennies. You're like, man, let me go through my couch quick and see if I can find some money to go out to eat. And, you know, then you might do that, but you begin to feel as you don't have a lot of resources, you think, man, I don't have very much. It's, it, and it's harder to manage that well because when we don't have a whole lot, we think i got to keep what I have because I don't have very much. And if I give away some of what I have, Like I'm not, just not going to have enough. It's not going to stretch. It's not, not going to work. And Jesus says, listen, when you have very little, that's when the testing comes. If you can't be trusted with this little If you can't be trusted with the very little that you have, and if you can't make the right decisions with the very little, why in the world are you going to make the right decisions with the very much? You're not all of a sudden going to make awesome decisions if I give you a million dollars if you're not making awesome decisions now with your five dollars. Whoever makes good decisions with a little can be trusted with the much because you will understand the decisions that you need to make, even in the hardest of times. Which is why this becomes even more convicting. We just can't wait to make the right decisions we need to make with our money. Like wherever you are now, now is the time to make the right decisions. It doesn't get easier when you have more. There is no more that will make it easier for us to give, easier for us to be freed up, easier for us to invest in the right things. That doesn't happen. It just doesn't happen. Jesus continues. Verse 11. So if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? This is a powerful statement. If you haven't been... Entrusted, if you haven't been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? You see what he's setting up there? He's saying that there's, there's worldly wealth and there's true riches. These are opposed to one another, if you will. They're separate. In other words, uh, Chip Ingram used to say that, that um, faithfulness with material wealth is a prerequisite to being entrusted with spiritual wealth and rewards. That if we're not faithful, and this is really compelling and really convicting, if we're not faithful with material wealth, then we won't be entrusted with spiritual wealth and rewards. There's a parallel that Jesus makes. Because how we handle our money is a spiritual issue. It's not just a matter of let's make more money for ourselves so we can retire high off the hog or whatever, and we can go do whatever we want. It's not about that. There's a spiritual component to how we handle the resources that we have. And faithfulness with material wealth, Jesus says here, if you can't handle material wealth, who's going to trust you with true riches? Who's going to trust you with true riches if you can't handle worldly wealth? Verse 12, If you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No servant can serve two masters. He'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. And the Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. And he said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. And here's what I think Jesus is saying at the end. You can't serve both God and money. In other words, if you were to make the choice, if I were to say you had to love God or love money, what would you choose? And if I had to do a hand raise here, I think we would all, if we're, even if we're not honest, we just wanted to go with the crowd, we would know the right answer is love God. Okay, we're going to love God. We're in church, all right? You know the right answer is anything with God or Jesus is the answer or the Bible. You know, those are all good answers, all right? So love God would be the answer. We're going to love God. Does that therefore mean that I have to hate money? Does that consequently mean I love God and hate money? And the answer is is no. In other words, loving God in this context means I'm going to see the true value of my dollar not as as, um, a resource that is limited by this life, but I'm going to see it as a resource that extends beyond this life, that how I use my money now has eternal implications. How I use my resources now goes beyond this life to, to the next. And if I'm not faithful with the little that I have now, I'm not going to be entrusted with more later. Which is why Jesus commends, in this parable, why the master commends the the shrewd and dishonest manager. Because he got it. He knew that the greatest win here is actually not making sure that every debt is paid back to the master. Honestly, if it were me, I would have commended the manager for that. I would have commended the manager for bringing me the books that were fully balanced. I would have commended the integrity of the manager if he brought back and said, you know what, here's exactly what people owe but the master knew that the manager dropped 50% off the olive guy and 20% off the wheat guy. And he commended him for it because he said, you got it. You see the value of the dollar. It goes beyond just me making my money here in this life. It has a whole nother storyline to it. It has a whole nother storyline to it. How many of you ever watched um, any of the VeggieTales stuff that... that um, Vegetails was put out. Anyone ever see that, that stuff? All right. How many of you didn't raise your hand but have actually done that? Okay, there we've got some people who are lagging. All right, thank you for that. Things like that, there are separate storylines that adults get the kids don't get, right? You watch things like that and you see a storyline from an adult mind and you start laughing and your kids are like, Well, what's funny, mom and dad? And you're like, Ah, ah yeah, yeah. You'll get it when you're older. Like, there's a whole other whole other storyline that comes this is what jesus is saying with money there's a whole other storyline behind it do not think about your resources as limited by this world because they're not so jesus disciples their followers they understand the true value of the dollar they understand it now what can we do a couple questions two questions and one statement i want to bring to you number one um, how am I handling what I have right now? I want to talk about the right now question. How am I handling what I have right now? It's a question worth asking. If, you are, if you're here, you're listening, you're thinking, I want to grow in my faith, right? I want to become more and more of a fully devoted follower of Christ. I want to do that. I want to grow in my faith. I want to grow in my spirituality. What does it mean? So here's a question to ask related to our money. How am I handling right now what I have? Not later, but now. You guys, I think you know this, but there's, there's no way to be more faithful later than what you can be right now. Like what little that you have now, I totally get the stress that comes with the thought of giving and being generous with and investing in kingdom stuff, when you look at the, the rent that's due and you look at the, the health bills that are coming, you look at the car stuff that's breaking down, you look at the appliances that need fixed, and you look at the, the roof that needs replaced, and you look I mean you look at everything out there, you look at your kids' college and future, and I mean you look at I get it, I get it, I get it. We have limited resources, right? We say money doesn't grow in trees. I get it, I understand all that. Listen, right now, right now where you are. How are you handling the resources that you have? Do you have a plan? Do you have a plan in place to give first, save second, and spend third? Do you have that plan in place? Have you developed or are you developing that rubric, that thinking in your mind, that as a follower of Jesus, in understanding the true value of the dollar, I am first a giver. Right off the top, I am a giver first. Then I'm a saver then I'm a spender. I'm telling you, that is something to teach your children. That is something to apply through your life. That I give, save, spend. That's what I do. I give, I save, I spend. That's what, what I do. I give first. Not because I need your money from the church's side. Not because we need to balance some budget or anything like that. But because we know that how we handle worldly wealth is a prerequisite to being entrusted with spiritual wealth and rewards. Luke 16, 11. Jesus just said that. Give, save, spend. How am I handling my resources right now? Second question is this, how can I leverage my financial influence to increase my circle of friends for the kingdom of God? This is a bigger question. How can I leverage my financial influence to increase my circle of friends for the kingdom of God? This is a practical question. Actually, this can be very fun as well, if I'm honest. Um, Several years ago, uh, some of you, uh, most of you will not know this story. Some of you will. I was given an incredible gift by people at this church whom I don't even know who you are. I was given a gift of resources, of of money to buy a, a bike, which I did not have on my own. Now, here's what happened to me. When I got that gift, I still don't know who all contributed to that. But here's what I know. If I were someone who didn't believe in anything that this church is about. And someone invites me into this kind of activity, like, go buy a bike. Why don't you try it and you, know, you can use us to go get a bike that we're you know, just not going to be able to get otherwise. You know what all of a sudden I feel in my heart? Anger toward people to be so generous. I don't need your money. Like, what do I feel? I feel like, whoa. I think there's something there. Like, Even if I don't know who you are and I still don't know who you are, there's something in me that you have just endeared yourself to me. Your cause is interesting to me. I want to know a little bit more about what you stand for. Why would you do that? Because I know that you're like me. You have bills to pay. You have children to send to school. You have health issues. I understand that, and yet you gave to me. Isn't it true that just like, and this this happened in Jesus' world, in Jesus' world, friendships and money went together, that money was used to, to clarify who's friends with who, and just the way that worked. And isn't it true that it happens for us too? Isn't it true, haven't you felt sometimes when you're, hanging out with a new group of people that, man, sometimes they, they do hobbies that are outside of my reach. I can't financially afford that. I, I can't go whatever. I can't go do that activity or this activity. Oh, it must be nice to have that kind of money to go blow it going out to eat all the time. I mean, oh, I'm glad you got to go out to eat. That's great for you. Isn't it true that still today money... And the resources we use to do certain things creates certain groups of friendships and sustains certain groups of friendships, right? Isn't that true? There are some people who vacation together because they can. There's other people who look at that and say, man, I could never vacation like that. I just don't have the money. There's some people who, whatever, you might want to say bike, like now I'm able to do. Why? Because the resources are there and others may be like, you know what, man, wouldn't that be nice to have the resources to do that? Our resources create, sustain, and sometimes fracture our communities. And they, they can fracture a relationship. They can keep certain people feeling like they're on the outside because they don't have the resources to dress well enough to hang out with me or you. They don't have the resources to go do the things that you do or I do. They don't have the money to go out and, and do all that stuff. And, and here's the question that Jesus puts on the table, basically, is how are you going to use your financial resources? How are you going to leverage that to invite people to the table who otherwise wouldn't be there? How are we going to use your resources to give gifts to, to support, to encourage in the right way? Relationships with people who otherwise wouldn't be a part of your life. It goes right back to Jesus being accused of being a friend of sinners and tax collectors. <laughs> we don't hang out with those people. They can't afford to, so I don't invite them. I don't want to make them feel bad, so I'm not even going to invite them to this because I know they couldn't afford to go out to eat, so I'm not going to ask them. Well, what if you came up with a creative way to bring them to the table? Well, I couldn't vacation with them because they can't. I don't want to make it hard on them. I know they don't have the resources. It would be hard to be a push on their life, so I'm going to vacation people who can afford it, and, and that's okay. We all get that. But what if I said, you know what? I need to bring people to the table on a vacation that I would normally go on and they couldn't go on, but I'm going to bring them to the table and we're going to figure out how to make this work in an honorable way for everybody. Jesus is accused of being a friend of sinners and tax collectors. Listen, bring to the table people at your feast who otherwise wouldn't be here. Don't just invite people to the table who will honor you and who you will honor. Figure out a way to leverage your resources to bring other people To the kingdom of God. To be friends with you. This is the parable of the shrewd manager. Because at the end of the day, Jesus' disciples see the true value of the dollar. They get it. They see the value of the dollar and they know that there's a whole other storyline that goes beyond this world that goes further into eternity. How right now are you handling the resources that you have? Number two, how can you leverage your financial influence to increase your circle of friends for the kingdom of God. It's an incredible, incredible opportunity to see the other side, to go beyond simply the dollar and all that I need, to push, push, push past that, to be generous for the sake of friending, befriending, neighboring well people around us who otherwise would not perhaps even hear the name of Christ. A strange story. The shrewd manager, dishonesty, seemingly commended because he got it and he understood the true value of the dog. Let's pray together. Our good God and heavenly Father, thank you for giving us your word to reflect on, to learn from, to be challenged from. I pray that you would give us courage with the money that you have entrusted to us, with the management of the resources that we have. Give us the wisdom and the insight and the courage to pull the trigger on generosity. Help us to be creative in how we leverage our financial influence to bring other people who don't have the means that we might have how to increase our circle of friends so that at the end of the day that we're welcomed into eternal dwellings, that there's an eternal perspective to what we do. I pray that you give us courage to rethink our vacation plans, to rethink our our evening um, activities that we do, our spare time activities of how we can draw in in healthy, productive ways, creative ways, people who might otherwise not be able to enjoy the things that we do. Father, I pray that you give us the courage to do what we know we need to do and the wisdom to see beyond this what we need to see. Help us to see the storyline that goes beyond simply the dollar in front of us and to see the true value of the dollar. We pray in Jesus' name.